Good morning, Disciples Church. My name is Seth Hahn, and I have the pleasure of reading 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. Please stand with me in the reading of God's Word. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. It is good to see you and good to be with you as always, and I'm so glad that you're able to join us here this morning at Disciples Church. My name is Jonathan Moser. It's my privilege and honor to be able to open up the Word of God with you this morning. So if you could turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. There's something ironic about preaching on contentment the night after a trick-or-treat, a night solely devoted to getting uh, as much Candy, candy as one possibly can, but we'll, we'll talk about it anyway. We were, tr- we were trick-or-treating uh, last night with some neighbors and some friends um, from the neighborhood and things like that, and as we were walking from house to house, we had been out probably for about an hour, which even last night where the weather was fairly moderate, it was starting to get cool enough where at least adults, the adults were getting tired of being out, and so one of the parents had said to their kid, uh, whose face was covered with chocolate, uh, dressed up, I believe, as a, a little policeman. Um, his face was covered with chocolate, and they said, you know what, it's probably time for us to start heading back. And he goes, Mom, just one more house, which is exactly the right sentiment for a four-year-old to have. But it really is that idea, right? That familiar scene that probably all of us have experienced, uh, either personally or with our own kids, was funny to witness in that, in that context because it illustrates to some extent or another that lack of contentment that is wired within us. I mean, it's something we are born with. We always want more of it. We want a lot of whatever it is uh, that, that it is that we desire. And if you remember back last week to verse 5 of 1 Timothy chapter 6, it ended with Paul saying that there are some who imagine that godliness brings with it all kinds of gain. In other words, that God becomes an ends to a particular means of whether that's financial benefit or personal advancement or success or happiness. And our mind, as we think about the idea of godliness bringing with it all kinds of gain and what these false teachers were trying to pursue in verse 5, our minds might drift to all kinds of recent examples of that. If you were around in the 80s and had a television, you probably saw all kinds of evangelists where it later came out that what they were really after was the pleasures of this world, financial gain and all kinds of personal advancement and success and their own agendas and influence and power and all of the ways that that has a tendency to play itself out. You might think of modern examples of current day pastors who run around with multi-million dollar media empires and private jets, or you might think of scammers who promise financial blessing or personal health, wealth, and wisdom in exchange for your generous support of their ministry in this time of need. Or your mind might run to the self-proclaimed self-help gurus who blend, in some sense or another, the the spiritual essence of Christianity with materialism and promises of gain under the titles of a therapeutic self-help for the purpose of sales, or at least that's the cynical read of it, right? 
But the truth is that no matter how it is marketed or packaged, the abuse of God's name for personal benefit is not new. And here in this letter written 2,000 years ago, the Bible has a strong warning for those who would attempt to use the name of God and the ministry of God and the Word of God for their own personal financial benefit. It's actually something that Paul talks about in several different portions of Scripture. He addresses it at length as well in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, where he says this, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears... They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And I love even the verbiage that Paul chooses to use there where he says they have these itching ears. There's something about them where they want to be pacified. They want to be reassured. They want to be coddled in their own beliefs, in their own lifestyles, in their own behaviors. And in an effort to do that, what they're going to try to do is draw people, accumulate teachers, try to collect, as if it were, teachers for their own passions and their own desires and their own reassurance. There will always be a market for charismatic individuals who are willing to tell people what they want to hear. And far too often that happens under the guise of the name of Jesus Christ. And so what I actually want to do this morning is just a touch different from how we would typically work through a passage like this. I want to start at the end and kind of work our way back because I think if we look at verse 9 first, what we see is really the expansion of the instruction that Paul gave in verse 5. Verse 9, Paul says, but those who desire to be rich, notice that language, not those who are rich inherently, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmless desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. What Paul is saying is there is something inherently about wealth, and particularly the desire for wealth, that brings with it particular temptations and ultimately destruction if those ideas are not kept in mind. The warning here is specifically to those who are desiring to be rich. He's talking about the heart motivation, those who are motivated and driven by the attainment of status and wealth. And certainly that's appropriate to hear in our modern context, particularly in our country. The truth is that we are peppered every day with the idea that true happiness, true joy, lasting meaning, purpose, and and virtue is found in everything from money and homes to beauty products and clothes to electronics and entertainment. That pleasure and joy and happiness can be found in a lasting and meaningful way in this life and in this place. But understand, that is not actually what Paul is going after, or rather, that is what Paul is going after here. He's not saying that there's inherently anything wrong with hobbies or vacations or cars or any of those things, but what he's saying is this. To suggest that there is a certain income level under which a Christian should live is certainly not the idea, but rather, Paul is trying to show us that this whole conversation about money and how Christians are to view it is to be rooted in the attitudes and the affections of the heart. It starts with what drives your purpose in life. See, the thing for us to remember is that the tempter is one who deals in the art of subtlety. 
And for many, if not most of us, if the devil came to you and offered to give you wealth and opulence in exchange for your soul, you would likely be smart enough to turn him down on that deal. If only that's how temptation worked, right? A guy with little horns and a pitchfork comes up to you and says, I will give you all this money in exchange, in exchange for your soul. If that's how it worked, we might be okay. But the devil works in subtlety. And the idea that we should live for material possessions and pleasures or that we can find our ultimate happiness in them is a subtle lie. It slips into our minds and our hearts through advertising and conversations with friends and even the well-intentioned ideals of a culture that suggests that the wealth of progress or success is a certain level of wealth or lifestyle. But to paraphrase the Puritan Thomas Brooks on subtlety, he says it this way, our sense of God's grace may be diminished in our lives by the secret, subtle, and strong workings of sin in our hearts. And those displays which God makes of His love, beauty, and glory in our soul do not always remain in their freshness and power upon the heart, but by degrees they fade and wear off. And then the soul may return again to folly. In other words, what Thomas Brooks accurately wrote about some 400 years ago is that your Christian love and affection for God and your understanding of God's grace and pursuit of you in your life and the way that that hinges everything about who you are in His direction slowly has a tendency to shift over time. It is a subtle turn. It's a slow turn. It happens in degrees and notches. It's not for the Christian who is in love with Jesus that one day you will just wake up and go, you know, today I'm just not in love with Him. It happens slowly over time. The devil chips away at our affections. The world draws away our desires for Christ. Our understanding of grace begins to diminish and our appreciation of and pursuit of worldly joys increases. So the question then for the believer is this, how do you actually determine if you've been ensnared? Because as we'll talk about in just a moment, we live in a country where all of us live pretty extraordinary lifestyles as compared to people just about anywhere else in the world. So how do we determine if our hearts and our affections have been ensnared by the subtle lie of the tempter? How do we know if that subtle lie has begun to take root in our heart? And the question that we need to ask as a diagnostic is this. We need to ask, what are we functionally living for? Not just what do we claim to live for, not just what do we claim is important to us, not, do, not just what we claim means a great deal to us, but if we were to begin to examine our lives, if we were to look at our checkbooks or our bank statements or our credit card statements, if we were to look at our homes and consider the way that we live week in and week out, what would it demonstrate about what we actually value? What drives and motivates you? What animates your heart and excites your passions? What occupies your thoughts? and your daydreams. Likewise, what keeps you up at night worried? What brings you pride for having it or embarrassment for not having it? The answer to those questions are indicators of what matters most to you. 
And to the extent that those answers for you, for you are things that have spiritual or eternal significance, be grateful that God has given you sight to see and new values to live for. And to the extent that your answers to those questions were indicators of a love of wealth or status or excessive pursuits of pleasure, understand that the subtle lie has begun to lead you away from the beauty of God's grace into the folly of selfish pursuits. So then the question is, well, why does it play out this way in us? Why does it actually work this way in our hearts? And we're given the answer for that in verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And the translators of the ESV do an excellent job in translating this. I want you to notice something that is written in this verse because it is something that is commonly misunderstood in our culture and in our churches. The Bible does not say that money is the root of all evil. And how many of you have heard that? I'm going to ask you to raise your hands. We're going to try this again this week and restore faith in, in uh, Dave's faith in the congregation as to whether or not you can. Has anybody heard that money is the root of all evil? Can you look at all these hands? Thank you, Pete. I appreciate it. The Bible, as you'll notice, does not say that money is the root of all evil, or even that the love of money is the root of all evil. It actually says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And here's why that distinction is important, because if we don't understand that, we're going to begin to ascribe a power to money that it does not inherently have. And we're going to begin to underestimate the importance of our own heart in this conversation. Certainly, the love of money is a root of evil. We can see, we can see the outworking, the symptoms, the growth of that evil all around us. We can certainly see it in our own lives. Because, but it's important to understand what this passage actually says because many have misunderstood this text and then applied it to all kinds of personal and political purposes. So for some people, the way this plays out is they begin to promote some sort of poverty theology. That would be the opposite of of the kind of theology that says that God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, and He wants to bless your life with all kinds of material blessings, and if you really love Jesus, you're going to be a rich person. We call that prosperity theology. It's also an error. And poverty theology is its sister. It's the idea that if you really love Jesus, you will be poor, you will be broke, that the only way to truly love Christ is to not have money. And for other people, it's far less personal and far less theological, and it's much more political. It's what's behind a push for taxation policies that go after the wealth as a specifically moral crusade. But to reduce this verse down to those ideas would be to ignore the Bible's admonition. So, for instance, we find all kinds of Scripture that talks about the idea that there is beauty in a man rightly providing for his family and leaving an inheritance. We find good and right examples in Scripture of how people use their wealth for the cause of the kingdom. We think of Lydia in Ephesus, a wealthy woman who funded the work of that church initially, or even the providing of a tomb for Jesus Christ from a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea. So no, this passage isn't inherently condemning wealth. It's condemning an attitude that desires to accumulate wealth for the sake of selfish gain. 
out of a heart of dissatisfaction for what God has provided and has promised He will provide. And the problem that comes with this for us contextually in this place now is that when we misunderstand this, we begin to have a judgmental attitude towards those that are wealthy, and we do that inevitably with with beginning from a subjective scale. So here's what I mean. I remember hearing a conversation several years ago um, with a former, uh, former uh, Packer defensive player. His name is Santana Dotson. You'll remember him from the Super Bowl years. And he was talking about the wealth that he had gained over the years and how somebody specifically had come up and said, listen, as a, as a former professional football player who made millions of dollars, what must, it like to, what must it be like to be rich? And Santana's answer is, well, no, 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 no. I'm not, I'm not rich. I'm wealthy. The guy who signs my checks, that guy's rich. All of this is a subjective standard when we start talking about wealth and those sorts of things. We can always find someone who makes substantially more money than us, and we can then turn around and denigrate them for their wealth or their perceived opulence. But what happens if we change the scale? So in 2018, the Washington Post ran an article that reported the findings of a of a bunch of Americans' view of their own financial status. And I want to quote to you from that article. Here's what it says. After adjusting for cost of living differences, a typical American still earns an income that is 10 times the income received by the typical person in the world. The average U.S. resident estimated that the global median individual income is about $20,000 a year. In other words, if you asked an average American, what do people make on average around the world, their guess was $20,000 a year. In fact, the real answer is about a tenth of that figure, roughly $2,100 per year. Similarly, when asked where they feel they rank, Americans typically place themselves in the top 37% of the world's income distribution. However, the vast majority of U.S. residents rank comfortably in the top 10%. Now, practically, what that means for us is this. By the world standard in which we live, we all are incredibly wealthy. And when you consider that we live in a time of incredible wealth, as compared to nearly any other point in history, we are incredibly wealthy. And what I think all of those statistics illustrate is the heart of 1 Timothy 6. That the biggest problem we have is not income inequality or the differences between the haves and the have-nots, but the deceitful, self-indulgent, and judgmental attitudes of our own hearts. So are there wealthy people who live selfishly and value material wealth? Yes, absolutely just as there are poor people who live selfishly and value material wealth. The natural inclination of the human heart is to pursue our own pleasure, our own self-satisfaction, our own joys at the cost of other people and at the cost of God. But notice then what Paul says in verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. 
And notice the juxtaposition with verse 5. In verse 5, he says, look, some of these people, speaking specifically of the false teachers, viewed godliness as a means of financial gain, a means of great gain. But, but what Paul says here, as translated by J.B. Phillips in his, uh, his, his rendering of the New Testament, is this. He says of verse 6, there is a real profit, of course, but it comes only to those who live contentedly as God would have them live. In other words, here's what Paul is saying. There is great gain in true godliness, but only when it's paired with contentment. And it may not be the financial gain that you were expecting. So then, where was the breakdown for the false teachers in verse 5? Well, here's the problem for them, and frankly, the problem for many of us they didn't understand godliness or contentment. Paul speaks about these same false teachers in Philippians chapter 3, verse 18, where he writes this, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Now, who is he talking about here? He's talking about those who previously claimed to be lovers of Jesus Christ. Those who claimed to know and love the gospel. Those who, those who came to the gathering of the church and sang songs and heard the preaching and teaching of God's Word and participated in the life of the church. Many of those very same people slowly drifted into a lifestyle where they began worshiping, as Paul puts it, their own bellies, their own human desires, their own material wealth, their own comfort. And how in the world does that happen? It happens slowly, day by day, notch by notch, little by little as you lose sight of God's grace and provision and put value and worth in this world's system. And so Paul says in Philippians 3, these people viewed godliness, or rather in, in, in verse 5 of 1 Timothy 6, these people viewed godliness as an outward religious expression. This is where there was a false piousness that put their own legalistic tendencies on display. And we've seen those things play out before, right? These were the same people who were telling people, listen, don't, don't marry and have a sexual relationship because certainly that has to be something that God doesn't want for you. So you should remain celibate. Don't ever marry. Now that sounds pious, but what we find out through the exposition of Paul is that what was behind that was all sorts of selfishness. That they were pursuing their own physical and sexual pleasure, according to 2 Timothy. That they were pursuing their own financial gain, according to 1 Timothy chapter 6. And functionally, though they claimed to worship the one true God, the provider God, the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, though they claimed to worship that God, functionally, the God they actually worshipped was one of their own construction. It's the very same thing that people do today when they say, well, I think that more than anything, God wants me to be happy. The motivation for many self-proclaimed Christians in regards to their relationships or their finances or their families or their lifestyle is under the guise that what God cares most about is your temporary happiness. But what's fascinating is that every time we hear God actually expose His own heart and give us His own word for what it is that He's after for us, it is never our temporary happiness. 
It is always our eternal joy. Our temporary circumstances may be fraught and difficult and painful. Life may inherently be a struggle. As a believer, you look at the life of the disciples, all of whom died under martyrdom except for John, who was boiled alive and somehow managed to live and then spent the remainder of his days in exile on the island of Patmos. We serve a Savior who was crucified, who didn't have a place to lay his head or a place to call home. And yet somehow we think that God's primary concern is our temporary material status. Paul says they've made gods of their bellies. In other words, their own physical earthly comfort has become the the final aim of their life. And not only did they not understand godliness, but they also did not understand contentment. The word translated contentment in our Bibles is the Greek word autarkeia, which literally means self-sufficient. And it's the idea that, that we realize that we have enough, that there is an adequacy that results in our satisfaction with our situation in life. It's the idea that for the believer, we are called to only want what we need and to be satisfied with what God has already provided. God may choose to bless beyond that in whatever way He wants for His own glory and for our own joy. But look then how He describes this in verse 7. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. Now, I love this verse for a variety of reasons, but mainly because Paul actually appeals to a colloquialism rather than a deep doctrinal truth. Of course, it is a deep doctrinal truth inherently, but it's as if he's saying, look, you came into the world naked, and no matter how much you accrue, you can't take it with you when you go. He's stating a truism, something that we all inherently know to be true, whether or not we believe in God. And in this verse, he's inviting you to take an eternal view of material things. See, the world would have you believe that your meaning comes from your ability to perform and succeed. That your wealth is an indicator of your worth. And those who had attempted to use a form of godliness, this external religion, as a means to garner wealth for themselves, had had bought into this worldly system. They had forgotten the very instruction of Jesus, according to Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, where Jesus said, look, no one can serve two masters. For either you will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So to try to use godliness as a means of financial gain is to misunderstand the purpose of both. And here's the truth. You will either use money to worship God, or you will try to use God to worship money. And if you are a Christian in this room who's wrestling with the temptation of desiring money and the worldly affirmation that comes along with it, consider what Paul warns us about in verses 9 through 10 happens to people who who pursue that lifestyle. This ideal has plunged people, verse 9 and 10, into ruin and destruction 
and they have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. That word pangs literally means a deep emotional distress. It's as if hunger pains could be ascribed to your soul when you're so hungry that you hurt, that you feel sick. He's saying it's as if your soul itself is doing that when you desire money above everything else. Why? Because you're trying to find satisfaction in something that can't satisfy. It's like a person who's dehydrated drinking deeply of salt water. The momentary relief and satisfaction is only followed by intensely deeper distress. So when Paul says we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of it, what he's saying is this, this world, for all of its promises of happiness and contentment and meaning and purpose, has nothing to offer you. It has nothing to offer you. The world system inherently terminates on itself. It cannot offer meaning and purpose. You came into the world with nothing and you will leave with nothing. So to try to live for the comforts and the status of this world is to live for something that by definition does not last. Verse 8. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Now here's Here's Paul's presumption. The only thing we need in this world is food and clothing. And I'm going to ask you, without raising your hands, do you actually believe that? Truthfully, we probably don't. This is not where our hearts sit. It is not where our culture sits. It is not what we presume from any perspective, but do you understand that at the heart, this is actually what Jesus gets after in the Lord's Prayer when he says, give us this day our daily bread. There's a reason he specifies daily. It's the idea that I am moment by moment, day by day, week by week, month by month, depending on God alone as my source of provision. And Jesus expands on that thought in his discourse in the same chapter, beginning in verse 25. I'll read it for you. You don't have to turn there. It's lengthy, but here's what he says. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food? And the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and these things will be added to you. See, when we believe the subtle lie 
that ultimate happiness can be found in this life, we inevitably confuse our wants and our needs. And in so doing, we create opportunity for all kinds of anxiety about things that we do not, by definition, need. A massive source of anxiety for all kinds of people, myself included, is based around expecting or hoping for things that we don't actually need. And the truth is that the only things we truly need in life have already been guaranteed by our Heavenly Father. What is truly valuable, according to verse 7, is the only thing that is brought in and out of this world, the individual person. It's what Jesus says later in Matthew chapter 6, where he says, are you not more valuable than the birds of the air and the grass of the field? Does your Heavenly Father not love you more than these things? See, in the economy of God, we've been given all sorts of things to enjoy. And make no mistake, God intends for us to enjoy them. Food and drink and clothing and homes and all kinds of things that God has granted us and gifted us with for our enjoyment and to be used for His purposes and for His glory. And God is saying, I've given you the, the, the beauty of creation and times of rest and relaxation and vacations and all kinds of delicious food and drink. But in His economy, there is only one thing in this world that has eternal and incomprehensible value. The human soul itself. So if you're here and you're scared because of your financial circumstances, or rising inflation, supply that can't be met, the state of the economy. Do you understand that God Himself is the source of all your provision? And He may choose to use your job, or He may choose to use something totally unexpected, but make no mistake who it is that is actually providing. God is inviting you to trust Him. And He's guaranteed to meet your needs. Maybe not your wants, but your needs. And do you understand, brother and sister, that just as a parent is concerned for the well-being of their child, the God of the universe is concerned for the well-being of those whom He calls His own. But the difference between God and a human parent is that God knows right down to the heart level what you truly need. And unlike a limited human parent, he owns the wealth of the world. As the old song says, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills and the wealth in every mine. And not only does He have the means to provide, but He loves you so deeply that He guarantees your provision. And so friends, until you recognize God as the source of, the reason for, and the object of your life and affection, you will have an unhealthy relationship with money. Viewing it as either the source of your security or the object of your hope. And either way, you will find yourself lacking. But if you want evidence of the good hands in which you find yourselves, you need only look 
to the cross. Now, why the cross? What does the cross have to do with my financial status? See, the spiritual need that you had was deeper and more costly than any material need you could ever experience. Before God's intervention, you found yourself spiritually bankrupt with no righteousness in your account and owing an insurmountable debt. But Jesus met you in your brokenness. He paid the debt that you owed, He credited His righteousness to you, and He made you, as if all of that wasn't enough, a fellow heir with Him of God's inheritance. And if He can meet your deepest spiritual need, you can be assured that your financial need is well within His capacity. So the invitation of this text is to not live for the things you can't take with you. And in so doing, lose hope in what you have to look forward to. But rather, live in assurance that the provider God who knows your needs before you ask gives graciously and generously to those who depend on Him. He cares and loves and provides for each of us. And He is not limited in His funds or His generosity. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank You for I thank you for a text like this that challenges our presumptions of where our security lies. And so, God, for those who are in this room who are potentially struggling, where their financial status is unsure, where maybe their job is on the line or their investments are struggling, or maybe where they've just stepped out in faith in one area of their life only to realize that the funds they expected weren't there, would you remind them, God, that you are the source of provision, that you can provide all their needs. And God, for those in this room to whom you've been incredibly generous, ask themselves those diagnostic questions of whether or not they've been ensnared. Would you Would you help them, first of all, if they have been ensnared, to view you not only as the source of their security, but also as the source of generosity, that they would view what it is that you've granted to them as something that belongs to you and something to which they've been entrusted as stewards rather than owners. So God, lead us into generosity. Lead us to leave a legacy of generosity within our families, within our communities, to bless those around us to further the cause of your ministry. God, realizing that in everything, you love us. You brought us into the world naked and dependent, and you carry us out of the world. And that is the pinnacle of your creation. Your love and your provision is guaranteed. So God, cause us to trust in you and to rely on you and to lean on you as our source and as the object of our everything. And it's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen.